welcome back to Read Me a Story. We're currently enjoying the book Precious Time by Erica James. In today's episode, Clara and Ned have put their travelling on hold for a week whilst Clara gets Mermaid House into some sort of order and Ned entertains Gabriel Liberty. Does this arrangement work out well? And what will Gabriel's sons, Jonah and Casper, make of the situation? Let's find out. Chapter 21 Archie had been too tired to face cooking supper that evening, so he had picked up fish and chips on the way home from the shop. He unwrapped the two parcels and tipped the contents onto the plates he had warmed under the grill, then put them on the table, where Bessie was doing her best to butter some slices of white bread. Her movements were heartbreakingly slow and clumsy, and all at once he was reminded of past Christmases, when Bessie would cook the largest turkey they could afford and invite any neighbours who were on their own to share it with them. One Christmas morning she'd sent Archie out on his bike to round up Miss Glennis Watson, a retired music teacher, who was so proud she would rather sit on her own listening to the radio than admit she couldn't afford to celebrate Christmas. Nor did she want it known that, other than her ageing cat, she didn't have anyone to spend it with. Please, Miss Watson, he had said, after knocking on her door. Mum says she needs your help. She wants us all to sing carols after lunch, and you're the only one she knows who can play the piano without her getting a headache. Will you come? Miss Watson must have known what his mother was up to, but she never let on. She had accepted her invitation graciously, pulled on her hat and scarf, her gloves and coat, locked the door and walked alongside him as he pushed his bike. They had almost reached home when she said, Do you play the piano, Archie? Oh no, Miss Watson, I'm not at all musical. Perhaps it's time someone taught you. I could give you lessons after school. He had said he would like that very much, but he didn't think his mother could afford it. But you mustn't tell her I said that, he had confided. She had smiled and said, I'm sure we can find a way round that little problem. At ten years old, he didn't understand that he'd just become a bridge between his mother's warm-hearted generosity and an old lady's pride. All he knew was that it was Christmas morning and a whole day of seeing his mother happy lay ahead of him. She liked nothing better than having people around her, especially those she thought she was helping. The world is full of sad and lonely people, she would say to Archie, so it's down to the rest of us to put a smile on their faces. One of her favourite games was to sit on a bus and see how many people she could make smile during their journey. The bigger the challenge, the more she enjoyed herself. See that poor old soul just getting on? The one in the tatty gabardine and the rucked up face to match, she whispered to him one day. Two peppermint humbugs says I can have her lips twitching by the time she gets off. And of course she had, and with so little effort. It doesn't take much to spread a little happiness, she always claimed. The first Christmas Miss Watson spent with them was also the year his father had turned up unexpectedly on Boxing Day. They had heard nothing from him for years. Then out of the blue, there he was, sprawled on the settee, throwing peanuts up into the air and catching them in his mouth, expecting to be fed before he strolled down to the pub to pick up where he'd left off with his drinking cronies. In bed that night, Archie had heard his mother telling his dad that, for the sake of their son, if he was back, it had to be forever, or not at all. Archie had held his breath. He didn't want his father around. 
He knew it would make his mother unhappy, that it would mean more drunken, violent rages. There'd be no more amusing bus rides together, no more cosy evenings by the fire while his mother read to him. His heart had crashed to a stop when he heard his father. Of course I'm back for good, Bess. What can I do to convince you that I'm a reformed character? I'm going to take the first job that comes along and prove to you I'm as good as my word. That first job never did come along, and he lay on the settee smoking and drinking beer while Bessie worked at the bakery. He even suggested, since he was around to see to the boy, he always called Archie the boy, that she ought to work more shifts because the extra money would come in handy. Archie had never been able to understand why his mother, when she could be so strong, she was known as the rock of the neighbourhood, was so weak when it came to dealing with the husband who treated her so badly. Perhaps her feelings for him overruled common sense and allowed her to compromise where otherwise she would have held firm. And wasn't that what he'd done with Stella? Even when he'd known she was having an affair, he'd held on to the hope that she would once again feel for him what he still felt for her. When he'd met Stella, she'd bowled him over. She was tall, elegant and knew how to dress to make the most of her long legs. How proud he'd been to catch such a stunner. She could have had anyone, but she had settled for plain old Archie Merriman. It's because you're going to take me away from all this, she would laugh, when he had asked her why she loved him. All this had been the noisy, robust family in which she'd grown up. Archie had thought her parents, brothers and sisters were full of fun and knew how to enjoy themselves. But she said that they embarrassed her, that they didn't aspire to anything. There was so much Stella wanted out of life, and that was one of the reasons he had started up his own business. Nobody in her family had done that. The men had all been employed at the local steelworks in Sheffield, while the women had cleaned and had babies. Archie? He looked up from his plate, realising that his mother had been trying to talk to him. Sorry, Mum, what did you say? Sad. He shook his head. No, just tired. It's been a long day. She forked up a chip with her good hand. Sorry. What for? Her words came out in a long jumble, but eventually he disentangled them. I told you earlier there's nothing to apologise for. It was great that you felt strong enough to go shopping, and it was a simple mistake you made, taking the wrong purse with you. It was only because you got flustered that your spe speech went all to cock. Remember what the therapist said. It's when you get upset that the words get clogged up inside your head. And if those people at the supermarket had been more understanding, she wouldn't have got in such a pickle, he thought, and stood up to put the kettle on. Thank heavens that young woman and her little lad had been on hand to help. He didn't like to think what would have happened if they hadn't been there. It broke his heart to think how distressed Bessie must have been and not being able to explain what was wrong with her. Water was gushing over the top of the kettle and he turned off the tap as his sadness turned to anger. His mother had been treated as if she was batty until a stranger had come to her aid. Not so long ago, Bessie had been as strong and capable as any one of them. His mother was still eating her fish and chips when he sat down again with their mugs of tea. She'd never been one to rush her food, but now she took twice as long. He wasn't bothered. He didn't have anything else to do that evening, and he was happy to sit with her. He reached for the local paper and flicked through to the classifieds to make sure his regular house clearance advert had gone in. 
the Watson section caught his eye. It was years since he'd been to the cinema. Stella could never sit still long enough to watch a film, and he was seized with the urge to go. What do you think to seeing a film at the weekend? he asked his mother. Without needing to disentangle her response, he could see that she approved of the idea. In the old days, going to the flicks had always been something of a treat for her. Clark Gable, Rex Harrison, Audrey Hepburn and Omar Sharif had provided her with a much-needed touch of glamour and excitement. He folded the newspaper and laid it flat on the table so that they could make their choice. Today's movie stars might not be as glamorous as they'd been back in Bessie's day, but they might give her a chance to escape the unfairness of her life for a little while. Chapter 22 Their breakfast eaten and everything tidied away, Clara was keen to make a start on Mermaid House. Her only concern was keeping Ned occupied while she got down to work. Though he could amuse himself for quite long spells, she wasn't sure how soon it would be before he was bored, and, like any parent, she knew that boredom might lead him into danger or mischief. The answer was to keep him busy, and having already glimpsed some of the ground-floor rooms, she felt there was enough relatively safe-looking junk lying around the place with which Ned could play for hours. Mr Liberty had offered to give them a tour of the house last night, but Clara had declined. Instead, she and Ned had driven back into Deaconsbridge and made a return visit to the supermarket, where, with a sub from Mr Liberty's wallet, she had bought several carrier bags of cleaning products, rubber gloves, cloths, tins of polish, air fresheners and several rolls of bin bags. She never did anything by halves, and having made a deal with the old man, she was determined to see it through. There had been no danger of her waking this morning and regretting her decision. That was not her style. She'd always been the same, even as a child, so her mother had frequently told her. If she'd wanted to come top in French, she went all out to achieve it. Conversely, if she didn't want to do something, like finish a piece of embroidery for a needlework lesson, there was no making her do it. Louise and the gang had always teased her that she saw life so clearly. Nothing ever muddies the water of your vision and thinking, does it? Guy had said to her one day at work, after she'd dealt with a dispute on the packing line between two women who claimed they couldn't work together. And she supposed he was right. She wished, though, that he hadn't made it sound like a criticism. Much to her amusement and Ned's delight, Mr Liberty had joined them for supper in the van last night. No steak and claret this evening, she had asked, when he had accepted her offer of grilled lamb chops and easy-cooked noodles. His gruff reply had got lost somewhere in his rattling throat and confirmed what she had suspected, that it was a while since he cooked himself such a meal, if ever. Over supper, he had brought up the subject of how much she expected to be paid. I'm nobody's fool, he said, pointing his knife at her. You're not going to con me. And I'm no mug either, so you'd better brace yourself. This won't be cheap. If you want the best, me, you're going to have to pay accordingly. I assume you have sufficient funds. That's damned impertinent. Just making sure we both know where we stand. For all I know, you might be a penniless old codger who's down to his last shirt button. I resent the implications of that last remark. I'll have you know that I'm not an old codger, and what's more... 
I'd bet my last shirt button that I'm better off than you. I'm glad to hear it. So why haven't you got around to throwing a wad of cash at some other idiot to do the job for you? Or are you just mean with your money? I've never been mean with money. Just prudent. If I was a Scrooge, do you think I'd be providing you with free electricity and water while you're here? And I didn't replace my last cleaner because I saw no reason to put up with another light-fingered woman helping herself to my belongings. So, what changed your thinking? That blasted doctor started poking his nose in. He went on to tell her how he had burnt his arm and reluctantly paid a visit to the surgery. I knew I was in trouble the moment that doctor started asking me how I was coping after my wife's death. Fine, I told him, but they don't want to believe that, do they? And then he turned up here and I got something in my eye and he blackmailed me into going to the hospital to have it checked. Blackmailed you? It was what happened, true as I'm sitting here. He threatened me with social services if I didn't get into the car with him there and then and go to the hospital. Clara had wanted to laugh at the doctor's audacity, but refrained, and again she felt sorry for Mr Liberty. He was clearly terrified that he was going to have his independence taken from him. It convinced her that she was doing the right thing in helping him, and that her main objective was to make him see the sense in getting regular help once she had gone. If he didn't, he'd be back to square one within weeks, with the threat of social services hanging over him, if indeed they were a real threat. She'd smiled at the thought of the days ahead when she would be giving Mr Liberty a taste of his own medicine, a generous dose of bully. Carrying the bags of cleaning things, Clara let Ned run on ahead to knock at the door. It was opened almost immediately, as if her employer had been waiting for her to arrive and clock on. Is your eye better now, Mr Liberty? asked Ned. The patch had gone, and without it he looked a little less fierce. It's as good as new, he replied starchily, and stood back to let them in. Where will you start? The kitchen? We'll start first with improving labour relations, Clara said. You will bid us good morning, then you will offer to put the kettle on, and while you are making us some coffee, I will survey the wreckage and assess the extent of the damage. She handed him one of the carrier bags. There's a jar of instant in there, along with a packet of biscuits, which will add to your onerous duties as a tea and coffee maker. He grunted and led them through to the kitchen. Ever thought of buying a dishwasher, she asked, when she saw once more the piles of dirty crockery still untouched on the draining board. Waste of money for just one person. There are some reasonably priced ones on the market, small machines designed for people on their own. Reasonably priced, he repeated. I don't need things to be reasonably priced. I told you, I have money. Well, try spending it. Or are you hell-bent on leaving it to the family of whom you've spoken so highly? He snorted, then reached for a pen and a used envelope. He handed them to Clara. Make a list of all the things you think I need. I'll put a new heart at the top of it, shall I? Her first job was to clear the decks by shifting most of the junk onto either the table or the floor so that she could get at the work surfaces to scrub them clean. Once she had done the sink, she tackled the washing up, then moved on to the cupboards, which were chock full of things that she doubted were ever used. At the back of one, she found a two-year-old bag of self-raising flour crawling with weevils. Cringing, she threw it into a bin bag 
along with a dozen pots of out-of-date Shipham's paste, two open jars of pickled cabbage, another of horseradish sauce that was a dubious shade of yellow, and a tin of rock-hard oxo cubes. It wasn't difficult to work out what the poor man was eating on a daily basis. The stockpiled cans of pilchards and tomato soup were a dead giveaway. With Ned helping to empty the lower cupboards of old pans, buckled lids, steamers and fish kettles, the like and size of which Clara had never seen before, she called Mr Liberty. He appeared in the doorway and looked aghast at the mess. You've made it worse, he said, as he surveyed the scene. Oh, bring on the gratitude, why don't you, said Clara sharply. Now listen, I need you to decide what you want to keep. He shrugged. You decide for me. She took him at his word, and deciding that it was highly unlikely that he would be cooking a whole salmon in the near future, or steaming enough vegetables to feed an army marching on its stomach, or making vats of jam and marmalade, she put together a modest collection of pans for his basic cooking needs, and instructed Ned to take them over to the sink. He could mess around with soapy water under the guise of washing them up. "'What will you do with the others?' asked Miss Liberty. "'Some are fit for the dustbin.' Which reminds me, that skip I ordered should be here around lunchtime. But the better ones could go to a charity shop. Do you have such a thing in Deacon's Bridge? There was one, but when the rents on all the shops in the market square went up, it closed. It seems a shame to ditch them when they're in pretty good nick. Put the kettle on again and I'll have a think. With a bucket of hot water dosed liberally with disinfectant, she started to clean inside the cupboards. There was something satisfying about bringing order to chaos, and though she would never admit it to Mr Liberty, she was enjoying herself. By the end of the day, she would have the pleasure of knowing that she had personally conquered this grubby wreck of a kitchen. She would have it ship-shape and Bristol fashion, or her name wasn't Miss Clara Costello. Calling herself by her full name made her think about the formal way in which she and Mr Liberty referred to each other. It amused her, and if she wasn't mistaken, it amused him. Behind her, she could hear Ned talking to Mr Liberty as he spooned coffee into mugs. He was chattering nineteen to the dozen, just like he did at home with Granda, and she realised that as long as Ned had someone to talk to, he would not get bored. When Mr Liberty handed her a mug of coffee, and she indicated for him to place it on the floor next to her, he said, "'You've been working like a Trojan ever since you got here.' Why don't you take a break? She wrung out the cloth into the bucket and doffed an imaginary cap. God bless you, Governor, for not taking pity on a humble scullery maid. I'm touched. She was even more touched when he held out her hand and helped her to her feet. Bring your coffee with you and I'll give you a guided tour, he said gruffly. She tugged off her rubber gloves and, Ned following with the biscuits, Mr Liberty led the way. He stood for a moment in the vast hall, as though getting his bearings. It was a large house, after all. Do we need a map? she asked, good-humouredly. He threw her a disparaging look. Suggesting I am so far gone I don't know how to get around my own home? Not at all. I was merely implying you live in an above-average-sized house. How many bedrooms are there? Just the ten. Just the ten, she replied. Just the ten, she repeated. A bit cramped then. I know the way, said Ned, and sped off down the gloomy length of the hall, 
whose panelled walls were decorated with an incongruous mixture of African masks, a barometer, a large heavily worked brass plate that looked Indian, and a moth-eaten bear's head. Everything was covered with a peppering of dust, including the ornate gilt frame of a massive oil painting depicting a highland stag. Where's he taking us, she asked, and do you mind? To the library, and it doesn't look as if I have much choice. When they caught up with Ned, he was swinging open a heavy door. Slow down, partner, Clara told him, and you've had enough biscuits. She took the packet and handed it to Mr Liberty. For the first time she noticed his arthritic hands, how swollen and clenched they were. Slipping a thumbnail under the top biscuit, she raised it so that he could easily get at it. He caught her eye. Don't go putting yourself out on my account, he muttered. Don't flatter yourself. The library felt cold and damp, but was comparatively tidy, inasmuch as it contained a few basic items of furniture. Two leather armchairs either side of a stone fireplace, another two in the bay window either side of a large French table, a footstool and a lampstand with a dented shade and an unravelling gold fringe. Two of the walls were lined from floor to ceiling with books, but it was difficult to make out anything in any detail. The curtains were drawn, keeping out the light and holding in the musty smell of age and soot. Clara guessed that the chimney needed sweeping. Do you always have the curtains like this? Not always. He went over to the window and gave the burgundy velvet drapes a hefty tug, but it stops the light destroying the books. So the man had a weak spot, books above humans by the looks of things. She changed her mind when the light flooded the room and she saw the painting above the fireplace. Who's that? she asked. Mr Liberty stood beside her. My first wife, Anastasia. Clara stared at the young woman, her confident gaze and the beguiling gentleness in her expression. The eyes were full of warmth and humour and were as dark as her thick, tussled hair, which was painted so luxuriantly and with such depth that Clara could almost feel the silky curls in her fingers. Is it a good likeness? she asked softly. He took a noisy swallow of his coffee. Yes. She was very beautiful. And I suppose you're wondering what she saw in someone like me. Before she could deny or refute this, Ned called, Mummy, come over here. This is where the secret passage is. She went over to where he was standing. She stared at the rows of leather-bound books that he was pointing to. Are you sure? she asked, playing along with him. All I can see is a load of old books. His eyes danced with excitement as he glanced at Mr Liberty. Shall I show her? he asked, his hand already reaching to the shelf where, presumably, the handle was hidden. Mr Liberty sucked in his breath, then let it out slowly with a doubtful shake of his head. I don't know, lad. Can she keep a secret? We don't want her blabbing all over the county, do we? Ned's face grew solemn. Mummy, you won't tell anyone, will you? Do you promise? Hand on heart, she said, as seriously as she could. I promise not to tell a living soul about Mr Liberty's back passage. Mr Liberty snorted, but the hint of a smile on his face didn't escape Clara. Despite the misty rain, the views from the tower were spectacular. They would be even better if the windows were clean, thought Clara wondering if there would be sufficient time in the coming week 
to add the tower to her agenda. But was there any point? Dr Singh was hardly going to rate his patient's ability to stand on his own two feet, according to whether his extraordinary piece of whimsical architecture was spick and span. Stick to the essentials, she told herself. When was the house built, she asked. In 1851, John Temple, a local quarry owner, had it built for him and his family. He called it Temple House, but when his son inherited it and later discovered an underground cavern in the area with its dubious rock formation, the whole ridiculous mermaid saga was set in motion. As a consequence, and to pump up the son's ego, the house was renamed. You sound like you don't approve. I don't approve of scams. What's a scam? asked Ned. Not wanting Ned's anticipation spoiled, Clara gave Mr Liberty a warning look. To her grateful surprise, he said, Nothing you need worry about, young man. Any particular reason why the secret passageway was built? asked Clara. The age of the house precludes priest holes, and the geography certainly wrong for smuggling. No real reason, as far as I'm aware, other than that John Temple wanted something none of his neighbours had. Now, if you've seen enough, shall we get on? He took them down the creaking narrow staircase, along the dark corridor and back into the library. From there he showed them the rest of the ground floor, the dining and drawing rooms that, like the library, both smelt of soot, the gun room, where Clara had no wish to linger, and the laundry room, which was a glory hole with bells on. Piles of yellowing newspapers and boxes of empty whisky bottles littered the stone-flagged floor with dirty clothes, towels and bed linen. Mr Liberty kicked at the heap of washing. Machine's not working, he muttered, embarrassed. He picked up a wooden clothes horse and set it against one of the damp, spotted walls. Do you know what's wrong with it? She bent down to investigate. Haven't a clue. It's too modern and fancy for me. Jonah bought it last year and it's been nothing but a damn waste of money. It's supposed to dry as well as wash. All it does is bang about a lot. I'll take a look at it later, she said, though presumably it's still within its guarantee. He looked at her scornfully. You can mend a washing machine? Sure, so long as it's not the electronics. They're usually straightforward enough. Sounds like the drum belt might have worked itself loose. Mummy can mend all sorts of things, Ned said, helping himself to an empty whiskey bottle and unscrewing the lid. He pulled a face when he held it to his nose. Pooh! Is that right, Mr Liberty said, taking the bottle from him and replacing the lid. I don't like things to get the better of me, she responded. Or people, I should imagine. How astute of you. Now then, shall I get back to work or will you show us the rest of the house? The tour continued upstairs and mercifully the mess didn't get any worse. As far as she could see, the damage was relatively superficial. But it was the scale that was so awesome. That and the poignancy of some of the bedrooms. This was my second wife's room. It was where she died. Mr Liberty unlocked the door and let them in. It was strange the way he said it, and prompted Clara to ask how many wives he had had. Just the two, and don't look at me as though I was careless with them. It was a long oblong room with a view over the garden and the moors beyond. Val loved to look across to Kinder Scout, he said, moving to the window, which is why she chose this room. We never shared. He cleared his throat. We didn't have that kind of relationship. 
Clara would have liked to pursue this tantalising confidence, but wisely held back. Instead, she said, What did she die of? Ned, don't touch. They both looked at Ned, who had settled himself on a stool in front of a dressing table. Set out before him was a dusty array of scent atomizers, pots and tubes of cream, lipsticks, powder compacts, necklaces and bottles of nail varnish. At his mother's words, his hands, which had been hovering over a pair of reading glasses, dropped to his sides. It was heart trouble, Mr Liberty said, joining Ned. He picked up the glasses and slipped them inside a tapestry case. I should have got rid of this slot, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. Makes me look like a sentimental old fool, doesn't it? Without answering him, she said, Would you like me to sort it out for you? There's clothes too. He indicated two large mahogany wardrobes and a matching pair of chests of drawers. Just let me know what you want to keep and I'll bag it up for you, if that's what you'd like. Next he showed her the rooms that had belonged to his children. It was at this point, standing in what had been his daughter's room, that Clara realised it was what Mr Liberty didn't say, coupled with the emptiness of some of the rooms in this huge house that revealed most about him. She realised too that she hadn't seen a single photograph of any of his children, other than the portrait of the first Mrs Liberty and the second wife's belongings, there was no record of anyone else having lived here. She thought of her parents' modest little semi-detached house and the rogues' gallery of pictures they had of her and Michael growing up with treasured photographs of Ned and their latest grandchild. As a teenager, she'd been mortified at the number of photos around the house recording her transition from gummy baby to spotty adolescent but by the time her graduation photo adorned the wall of the dining room, along with Michael's, she'd come to terms with her parents' pride and knew that when the time came, she'd probably do exactly the same. Which she had. From his birth, Ned's likeness had been framed many times over. When she'd been clearing the house ready for the young couple who would be renting it, she had spent hours removing them, wrapping them and storing them in a box to go in the attic. Ned had been captured in every conceivable pose, smiling, frowning, chewing, laughing, crawling, clapping, sitting, walking, even sleeping. Casper, Damson and Jonah's bedrooms were shabby and bare. Each contained an uncovered wooden frame bed, a rug, a few pieces of functional furniture and a series of ghostly marks on the walls where once there had been shelves and pictures. It struck Clara that someone had gone to a lot of trouble to strip these rooms. It seemed such a callous act, vindictive, almost a threat. But as Mr Liberty went on to show them the rest of the bedrooms, which were piled high with trunks and huge ugly pieces of furniture, with faded wallpaper coming away from the walls, she began to think it was no wonder he was so miserable. If she had to live in this mausoleum, she too would turn into a crabby old devil. Suddenly, she felt angry with his children. How could they have left him to rot here? OK, he clearly wasn't an easy man, but why hadn't they persisted and won him over? Because it was easier to turn their backs and forget him. They were a bunch of idle, pathetic cowards, and they ought to be ashamed of themselves. This thought was still with her when Mr Liberty showed her his bedroom. It was almost 30 feet long, with a spectacular view over the garden and the moors beyond she made a mental note to deal with the curtains which were lying on the floor.
When he made a surprising offer to take Ned off her hands and play a game with him, she returned to the kitchen with renewed vigour and determination. She switched on the radio, moved the dial to classic FM and pulled on her rubber gloves. Her plan now was to tackle at least one room a day so that by the end of the week a minimum of seven would have been scrubbed and polished which would go some way to restoring the house to what it had been. She turned her attention to the Arga and hoped it wasn't a lost cause. If she could get that running smoothly it would make all the difference to the dreary atmosphere in the kitchen. Chapter 23 Gabriel passed Ned the pack of playing cards and told him to shuffle them. I'm not very good at that, Ned said, kneeling up on the chair and taking the pack uncertainly in his small hands. I'm sure you'll make a job of it than I would. As he jumbled the grubby cards, Ned said, Why are your fingers so funny, Mr Liberty? They're all knobbly and crooked. That's because I'm the crooked old man who lives in the crooked old house. No, you're not, and your house isn't crooked at all. What are we going to play? What can you play? Um, pears. But we usually use picture cards. Nana gave them to me for my birthday. Well, let's try it with these. Have you finished messing them up yet? I think so. Shall I spread them out for us? Be my guest. Leaning across the dusty table, placing the cards face down, Ned said, That's what Granda always says to me. Huh? If I ask him if I can play outside, he says, be my guest. I'm surprised Grandar ever gets a word in edgeways with you around. Don't you ever stop talking? Nana and Grandar are in Australia, Ned carried on. Grandar sometimes calls me his little pumpernickel. I have a baby cousin now. I've seen pictures of, of him on the internet. Do you think Nana and Grandar will see any kangaroos? Kangaroos are funny. They go boing, boing, boing. Just as Gabriel was despairing of ever keeping up with such a butterfly brain, the child got down from his seat and gave an impromptu demonstration of how he thought a kangaroo would bounce around the library of Mermaid House, ankles together, elbows tucked in and hands sticking out in front of him. And you'll go boing in a moment if you don't get back into your chair. I thought we were playing pairs. Gabriel watched the boy climb up into the leather armchair and resume setting out the cards. At least he wasn't cheeky and constantly running about the place, smashing into furniture. He had an inquiring nature and Gabriel approved of that. His spitfire of a mother was doing a good job of bringing him up, just as she was doing a good job of sorting out the kitchen. He was still surprised that she hadn't changed her mind about helping him. Perhaps after all the money had swayed her. But she didn't seem the sort to be strapped for cash. People like her, quick-witted, intelligent, well-spoken and confident, didn't usually struggle to make ends meet. They knew where they were going, they had a goal and went for it. They weren't drifters who sponged off others in the hope of handouts, which brought him right back to where he had started. Why the dickens was she mucking out his kitchen? He hoped it hadn't been an act of charity. Charity was for those too weak to help themselves. That wasn't him, and it never would be. He caught the sound of music coming from the kitchen. Blast the woman, she'd gone and fiddled with his radio. And his gaze moved from the boy to Anastasia's portrait above the fireplace. She was very beautiful, had been Miss Costello's words earlier. 
but they didn't cover half of what Anastasia had meant to him. Her inner strength, humour and dazzling candour had attracted him to her when they had first met at a mutual friend's wedding. Compared to his contemporaries, he had left marriage relatively late. He claimed it was because he was so busy, but until Anastasia he had never met a woman with whom he had wanted to spend more than one night, let alone the rest of his life. She had changed that as soon as he had taken his seat beside her at the back of the church. During the excessively long sermon on the sanctity of marriage, delivered by a vicar who plainly liked nothing better than a captive audience, she had leaned into him and whispered, I know one is supposed to be awfully generous in these moments, but goodness, don't you just want to heckle the man down from the pulpit so that we can get on and enjoy ourselves at the reception, which hopefully will be a lot more jolly? He had smiled and agreed. I can't tell you how tempted I was a few minutes ago to leap to my feet and say I'd just cause an impediment as to why the marriage shouldn't take place, she had added, her wide-brimmed hat knocking his head as she leaned closer to him. What is it? he had asked, amused. That I know they'll split up within the year. I can't think of a more unsuited couple. When they were outside the church, watching the ill-fated bride and groom pose for the photographer, she said, do you think anyone would object if I removed my hat? He had wanted to say that if anyone did, he would personally knock them to the ground. He had watched her take it off, remove several pins, and let an autumnal rustle of curly brown hair fall around her shoulders. It enhanced her long, slender neck and made her even more alluring. I don't think you should bother with hats. You look perfect without one, he said. She had given him a brilliant smile. Not one of those brittle, glued-on social smiles, but a flash of sunny brightness. Do you really think so, she said. Between you and me, I paid a ridiculous amount of money for that one, and all to disguise my unfashionable hair. Every other woman here, including the bride, is dyed blonde like Grace Kelly. Had you noticed? Truth was, he hadn't noticed a single woman until he had sat next to her. I went all the way to London for that hat. It seems a shame to let it go to waste, she said. There was no vanity in here, just a mild touch of irony. It was something he soon came to love. She was at her best when she was being entirely herself. Have you seen Grace Kelly's latest film, The Country Girl, she asked. For such a natural beauty, she was surprisingly good as a plain girl. No, I don't go to the cinema, I don't have time. What do you have time for? Work, mostly. Sorry if that sounds dull. You need someone to change that for you. He stared at her to see if she was mocking him, but she wasn't. Her smile was genuine, and he knew in his heart that there was no guile or cunning in her. He didn't know her name or where she lived, but suddenly he wanted to know everything about her. More importantly, he wanted to know that he would see her again. He said, What are you doing when this tortuous shindig is over? Confident brown eyes as dark as her hair had gazed at him, and he had momentarily lost his nerve. Why would this dazzling young beauty be remotely interested in a man whose friends described him as a confirmed, gone-to-seed bachelor? Having dinner with you, I hope, was her answer. A year later, in 1956, her prediction that their mutual friend's marriage would end in separation was proved right. They heard the news two days before their own wedding and it prompted him to say, 
Do you know any just cause or impediment why our marriage should not go ahead? None whatsoever. We are the best suited couple I know. She had been right. They had been the best of companions, the best of lovers. She was reassuringly self-sufficient, which suited him. Being so busy with work and travelling as extensively as he did, he had needed to know that she wouldn't be lonely without him, or unable to cope with the running of such a large house on her own. Too often he had seen marriages collapse, because one half of the couple relied too much upon the other. He and Anastasia relished being independent spirits, but the welcome he received when he came home after a long trip away never left him in any doubt that his wife loved him as passionately as he loved her. Still staring at the portrait above the fireplace, he sensed that, in many ways, Miss Costello was from the same mould as Anastasia. She was a confident young woman who would glide through life on the strength of her own determination. She was just the kind of person to take everything in her stride and make the most of it. Anastasia had never made a drama out of anything that went wrong, not even when the tower had been struck by lightning while they'd been in Canada. No doubt about it, they were two of a kind, and perhaps that was why he had felt compelled to seek Miss Costello's help. He had known instinctively that because she saw things so simply, she would be able to cut through the chaos of Mermaid House so that he could take control again. But while he could appreciate her many strengths, he realised that he knew little about her. What did she do when she wasn't roaming the countryside in a camper van with her young son? Where did she and the boy live? How did they live? Where was the boy's father? Was he her husband? And why had he himself made the assumption that she wasn't married? He tried to picture her left hand to see if he could recall a ring. He couldn't, but observation had never been his strong suit. He knew he shouldn't do it, but with his curiosity fully aroused and with the means to satisfy it sitting opposite him, he saw no reason not to ask a few questions. Finished, Ned said, sitting back in the large chair and admiring his handiwork. The circular table was now a patchwork of blue and green tartan. Shall I go first? As Grand I would say, be my guest. A short while later, when Ned's pile of successfully matched cards was greater than his own, Gabriel said, You're not bad at this. Are you sure you didn't look at the cards before you put them down? No! Ned's voice rang with indignation. I just have a better memory than you. Depends what one uses one's memory for. I can remember things very clearly a long time ago. But not where the Queen of Hearts is. Gabriel turned over the wrong card and Ned claimed the pair. I'm beating you, aren't I? Do you play this a lot at home with your mother? I do now, but not when we were at home. Mummy was too busy then. Oh, busy with what? Work. She had a very important job. She told lots of people what to do. Gabriel caught the past tense. Had a very important job. Redundancy, eh? Well, there was a lot of it about. She gave up her job to be with me, Ned said, with unashamed pride. He claimed another pair of cards. She said she wanted to give me an adventure I wouldn't forget. And here you are playing cards with an old man who can't remember where the nine of clubs is. Aha, got it. You're getting better, Mr Liberty, but I'm still winning. 
So who looked after you when your mother was busy telling people what to do? Nana and Granda, and I went to nursery too. Nana and Granda are in Australia, you said. Do you miss them? He nodded. Yes, but not so much now. Why's that? Because I see Mummy all the time now. And you prefer that, do you? Oh, yes. I wish it could be like this forever and ever. I wish I never had to go to school. But you'll have to go home some day, won't you? I suppose so. And your mother will have to go back to bossing people about. I can see that she'd be good at that. She's not bossy with me. She isn't? You sure? She loves me. When he heard the boy express himself so simply and honestly, Gabriel was jolted by something he didn't understand. It was a faint stirring of an emotion that was burnt, buried deep. There was a squeal from the table. Look, I found the jokers. And what about your father? Gabriel ventured, after he had watched Ned rapidly unearth another series of pears. There was hardly anything left on the table now. The child's memory was extraordinary. You never speak of him. As soon as the words were out, he regretted them. The boy, normally so bright and open, looked confused, as though he didn't understand the question, or perhaps didn't know how to answer it. Gabriel suddenly felt horribly unworthy, supposing his father was dead. There's lunch on offer if anyone's interested, said a stiff voice. It was the boy's mother, and Gabriel reddened with shame. Damn, how long had she been standing there, and just how much had she heard? His guilt was multiplied many times over when he stood in the kitchen and saw the transformation. The surfaces were all cleared and scrubbed to a high sheen, and the cupboard doors were so shiny that reflections bounced off them. The floor was no longer sticky underfoot, the windows looked as if the glass had been removed, and the cobwebs that had been hanging from the ceiling like last year's Christmas decorations were gone. There was no sign of grease or burnt-on stains on the cooker. The fridge door looked as if it had been given a coat of white gloss paint. The rubbish that had covered the table had vanished, and lunch had been set for three. There was a white embroidered cloth he didn't recognise, and in the centre of the plates of sandwiches and glasses of orange juice, there was a small vase containing some purple flowers. He could just about discern their delicate scent above the more powerful odour of cleaning fluids. It was as if he had walked into someone else's kitchen. He wouldn't have thought just a few hours could have wrought such a change. I don't know what to say, he murmured. A lump was firmly wedged in his throat. The more he looked, the more he was staggered. Thank you, would be a start. He could hear in her voice just how very cross she was with him. Ned, do you want to go to the loo before we eat, she said in a more kindly tone. It's down by the laundry room where Mr Liberty keeps his empty bottles. Be sure to wash your hands, I've put a clean towel in there. Gabriel walked awkwardly over to the arger, which had also been given a clean and a polish. He ran his hand over the smooth green enamel and caught a distorted view of a bulbous-nosed face in the shiny chrome of the hot plate cover. Miss Costello, I'm truly amazed at what you've done. Thank you very, very much. She gave him a steely glance and turned off the radio, which she had moved from the top of the fridge to the window sill. 
and if you want me to stick to our agreement, I'll thank you not to interrogate my son. Got that? He hung his head. It was a long time since he'd felt so ashamed. I'm sorry, he mumbled. At least have the decency to look at me when you're apologising. I'm sorry, he repeated more clearly this time and looking straight at her. Shouldn't have done that to the little lad. Not on at all, not my business. Good, she said briskly. Should you feel the disreputable need to play the part of Grand Inquisitor, please just ask me what you want to know, okay? Agreed. Contrite, meek, these were strange feelings to him, but that was exactly what he felt. That and the need to put things right with another person whom he clearly upset. But how? What could he do to make her think better of him? And when was the last time he had ever been concerned with what anyone thought of him? Chapter 24 Still beside herself with barely controlled fury over Mr Liberty's scurrilous behaviour, Clara was putting the surge of energy to good use. After lunch, and after she had instructed him rather curtly to wash up the plates, cutlery and glasses, she took the grimy curtains she'd early unhooked from the kitchen windows and took them outside into the courtyard. She wanted to get the worst of the dust and sticky cobwebs off before washing them. The fine misty rain had stopped, and as she shook the curtains, her anger began to subside. Just let him try a stunt like that once more, she muttered, and I'll be out of here faster than... Well, faster than anything he's ever seen move. Marching through to the laundry room, she threw the curtains onto the floor. Then, with the contents of the toolbox she had fetched from Winnie, she started to take the washing machine apart. To her satisfaction, her diagnosis was correct. Fortunately, nothing was damaged, and in no time at all she had it in working order. Not only that, but she soon had two loads of washing pegged on a line she had rigged up in the courtyard while a third load was sloshing around inside the machine. She went outside to catch her breath. The sun was making a valiant effort to shine now, and while she stood in the courtyard watching the clothes and curtains below in the light breeze, the skip arrived. Sorry I'm late, the man said, when he had lowered it into position and she was signing the form confirming its delivery, but it's been one of them days. Tell me about it, she said with feeling. Ned and Mr Liberty came to investigate just as the man was driving away. You don't do anything by half, do you, Miss Costello? Mr Liberty said when he had surveyed the scene. A large yellow skip and a line of his freshly laundered clothes, including some items he would perhaps rather not have had on show quite so visibly. Not if I can help it, she said. Aren't you going to thank me for mending your washing machine? I was just about to, but why aren't you using its dryer? No need, not when we can dry your unmentionables for free. Looks to me as if you could do with investing in some new ones. He scowled in embarrassment. Enjoying his discomfort, she said. Now then, as you're both here, you can help me ditch some of the rubbish I've collected. First to go will be those boxes of bottles from the laundry room. Under her directions, they worked steadily for the next hour and a half, until Mr Liberty suggested he made some tea. Got to keep the workers happy, he said, and sloped off. The moment Joan had driven through the school gates that morning and the exhaust had dropped off on the tarmac, he knew that it was going to be one of those days. 
Now it was three o'clock and he was accompanying Jace O'Dowd to the doctor's surgery in Deaconsbridge. He'd been in the staff room drinking a cup of coffee while standing over the temperamental photocopier and thinking about Year 11's parents' evening next week. When Larry Wilson, the design technology teacher, poked his unwashed head of grey hair round the door and asked if anyone would mind taking O'Dowd to the vets to be put down. Bloody idiots tried to chisel off a finger, he grumbled, when Jonah agreed to forego his hour of free time. If I've told him once not muck to muck around in my lessons, I've told him till I'm blue in the face. Serve the time-wasting blighter right if he's done himself some serious harm. Jonah found Jace waiting outside the secretary's office, and while he looked his normal cocky self as he leaned against the wall, kicking it idly, his face was white as the notices on the board behind him. He raised his temporarily bandaged hand at Jonah. I'm going to sue, he said. It's not safe making them chisel so friggin' sharp. I'm going to get the best lawyer legal aid can give me. A cracking idea, but first things first, let's get you stitched up, shall we? Exhaustless, they roared unceremoniously through the school gates, through the town and into the surgery car park, where Jonah pulled on the handbrake, switched off the engine and said, I'm not doing much for your street cred, am I, Jace? Could have been worse. Could have been old Mark Wilson bringing me here. I was referring to my car, not the status and quality of one of my colleagues. Yeah, but you agree with me all the same, don't you? He's a right poxy old woman. Jonah kept his expression unreadable. I couldn't possibly comment. They reported to the receptionist, then took a seat in the empty waiting room. Jonah said, By the way, Mr Wilson did contact your parents, didn't he? Nah, told him there was no point. Jonah sighed. Jace, school has to let them know. You know that as well as I do. We have to do things by the rule book, or that hotshot legal aid lawyer of yours will be down on us like a ton of bricks. His face set, Jace said. Leave it, sir. Then, how long do you think it will take for this to get better? Jonah looked at Jace's bandaged hand. Depending on how badly cut it is, a week or two? Why? Worried it might get in the way of your love life? He knew from corridor and playground gossip that since last Christmas, Jace was devoting less time to fighting on the estate where he lived and more to Heidi Connors, an anxious girl who was painfully thin. Jonah thought she might be anorexic. Jace's face coloured all the way to his sharp curled quiff. He got to his feet and went over to a table where there was a pile of pamphlets on family planning. Friggin' hell, sir, you ain't half got a filthy mind. I was thinking of my exams next term and whether or not I'll be able to write. Suitably put in his place and mildly surprised, Jonah apologised. I expect it'll be fine by then. He knew that Jace could now put together a history essay that covered enough salient points to get him a C grade, possibly even a B with a bit more attention to detail and the wind blowing in the right direction. But as to his other GCSE subjects, he wasn't so sure. Occasionally he heard mutterings in the staff room that Jace O'Dowd was nothing but a load of trouble and Jonah was annoyed that the youngster could be so easily written off. Sir? Yes? What do you think my chances are of getting a job when I leave in the summer? Do you have something in mind? Joe's gave him a withering look. I thought with the qualifications I'm likely to get, I'd start off with something easy. Investment banker, somewhere like that. Jonah ignored the sarcasm. You don't think you might want to stay on in the sixth form then? What? 
me? Have you flipped or what? Heidi's staying on, isn't she? Another flush rose to Jace's face. Yeah, well, it's okay for her. She's got brains. And so have you, Jace. You're just a bit more selective about how you use yours. I think you should consider it. He came and sat down again. He chewed at a grubby thumbnail. No point in considering it. It's too late. Says who? Old Ma Wilson, for one. Jonah mentally cursed Larry Wilson, remembering now that he was Jace's form teacher. What hope was there for this disillusioned 16-year-old boy if the person who was supposed to be offering support and guidance was consigning him to the burgeoning number of disenfranchised young people the length and breadth of the country? A shrill bell announced that whoever would be attending to Jace was ready to see them. Looking at his watch and seeing that they had only been waiting a short while, Jonah was glad that Dick High's policy was to use the local surgery in Deaconsbridge rather than the hospital. Expecting a nurse to stitch up Jace's finger, Jonah was surprised to be greeted by a slightly built man who introduced himself as Dr Singh. I've heard of educational cutbacks, the doctor said, unravelling the bandage from Jace's hand, focusing his attention on his patient. But removal of a pupil's finger is going a step too far, in my opinion. Ah, there we are. And what an impressive attempt has been made to slice through this fine finger. And what a lot of blood you have to spare. It was at this point that Jace's eyes rolled back and he fainted. Joan caught the boy before he slid off the chair and helped the doctor resettle him. Then, at his instruction, he went over to the small sink in the corner of the room and filled a paper cup with cold water. Conscious again, Jace took the cup from Jonah, but without meeting his eyes. Jonah knew that he was embarrassed by what had happened and would have liked to reassure him that nobody would hear of it from his lips, but the doctor was gesturing for him to get out of the way. Now, Mr O'Dowd, to avoid a repeat performance, I suggest you avert your eyes while I tidy you up. While Jace studied a poster that advocated a healthy diet of fruit and vegetables, the doctor completed his task with speed and efficiency. His small talk never once dried up as the needle dipped and rose, and a layer of gauze and a finger bandage were expertly applied. Which means you'll be spared the ignominy of a tetanus jab, so it's not all bad today, is it? Now, tell me, is school as awful as I remember it? Are your teachers, present company excluded, of course, as sadistic as they were in my day? Jace shrugged. Some of them are, but Mr Liberty's okay. Standing at the sink now and ripping off his surgical gloves, the doctor looked at Jonah. Either the young man is terrified of you, or you have a loyal and devoted fan. He's terrified of me, Jonah smiled. Terrified I'll do a better job of chopping off a finger next time. Coming back to his desk, the doctor paused. Forgive my inquisitiveness, but are you by any chance related to Mr Gabriel Liberty of Mermaid House? Surprised at the question, Jonah confirmed that Gabriel Liberty was his father. The doctor sat down and rearranged his sleeves. Well, how extraordinary, and isn't life strange? Suddenly the world is full of liberties. They are crawling out of the woodwork, so to speak. He laughed at his own joke. I'm sorry, Dr Singh, I'm not with you. Forgive me again, please, but in one week, I meet first your father, then your sister, and now you. You've met my sister. It was news to Jonah that Damson was in Deaconsbridge. What had brought her here? Then he remembered Casper. Of course, two of them were planning a pincer movement on their father. 
Oh, yes, Dr Singh said. I met her yesterday, your nephew too. They're staying with your father, didn't you know? Jonah gaped. Nephew? Good grief, Damson had had a baby? There was no point in going back to Dick High. School had finished 20 minutes ago. Jonah dropped off Jace at home and headed back towards town and the supermarket, as he usually did at this time on a Friday afternoon. Next he went to Church Cottage, where he left his own shopping, then drove on to Mermaid House, still unable to get his head round the idea that Damson was not only staying with their father, but was a parent herself. He hadn't seen her since Val's funeral, but he couldn't imagine that she'd changed in the interim to the extent that she was now a doting mother. The light was fading when Clara remembered to bring in the washing. It was dry enough to be ironed, so she folded it neatly into the pitiful excuse for a laundry basket, thinking that if she wasn't too tired, she might tackle it later in the evening. She was just adding the last of Mr Liberty's threadbare underpants to the pile when she heard an almighty racket. The throaty rumble grew louder and nearer. Someone's car was in need of a new exhaust. She went inside the house to find Mr Liberty, to warn him that he had a caller. It was probably Dr Singh again, and if it was, she needed to know if Mr Liberty wanted her to keep her head down or to be a visible presence in the guise of a helpful daughter. Interrupting a rumbustious game of snap in the library, she told Mr Liberty he had a visitor. Like her, he assumed it was Dr Singh. Instantly, every inch of him was bristling, ready for battle. She followed a few steps behind him, but stayed out of sight when they reached the kitchen. Peeping round the door frame, she saw that they had leaped to the wrong conclusion. Standing beside the table, and with several plastic bags at his feet, was a tall man in a leather jacket. His collar-length hair was thick and wavy, and as he stared round the kitchen in obvious amazement, his profile and stance reminded Clara of a Renaissance painting. Good God, Jonah, what are you doing here? He turned. It's Friday, Dad, the day I always go shopping for you, and the day we agreed I'd come and see you. What's been going on here? It looks fantastic. Has Damson done this? He plonked the bags on the table, carefully avoiding the vase of flowers. Mr Liberty looked incredulous. Damson, he snorted. Damson be damned. Having sized up the situation that this was the youngest of her employer's uncaring darlings made flesh, Clara decided to leave them to it. She turned to join Ned, who was still in the library, but a commanding voice bellowed, Oh, no, you don't, Miss Costello. You come right back here and take the credit for all your hard work. She stepped into the kitchen. I'm in no need of credit, she said briskly, making her tone hostile. Irrationally, she wanted this casual-looking Renaissance man to know that she disapproved of him, but she despised him for being too weak to take his father by the frayed scruff of his neck and whip him into shape. Miss Costello and I have what one might call an arrangement, Jonah, Mr Liberty explained, a wry smile twisting his mouth. For an exorbitant sum of money, she is staying with me for the week to do my bidding. What your father is trying to say in his clumsy way, Clara said sharply, is that I'm here to tidy up Mermaid House. She gave them both an accusing look. And since you're clearly about to settle in for a family bonding session, Ned and I will be off. Mr Liberty guffawed loudly, but his son continued to stare, confused. Could someone please explain exactly what's going on here, he said, and where's Damson? 
House Bells, what makes you think she's here? I was told she was. Apparently, I have a nephew who I'm curious to meet. Clara exchanged glances with Mr Liberty. She said, have you been talking to a certain Dr Singh? Yes, this afternoon I was at the surgery with the pupil and he told me that your sister was staying here, interrupted Mr Liberty. He smiled triumphantly at Clara. Didn't I say we'd taken him in? Ha! We reeled in the poor stupid fool, good and proper. What a team we make. But Clara wasn't so triumphant. Hang on a moment. Before you start ringing the bells of victory, hadn't you better check with your son that he didn't dispute the matter and blow your little scam out of the water? Liberty Junior held up his hands. Whatever scam it is that you've got going here, I'm not guilty of trying to spoil it. His father needed convincing. You're sure about that? His tone implied he might reach for a shotgun if the answer wasn't to his liking. I played my part beautifully, dumb schmuck, right to the end. Now why doesn't that surprise me, muttered Clara. Even by her standards, the remark sounded more caustic than she had intended, and Liberty Junior frowned at her. He started to unpack the bags of shopping and said to his father, I'm sorry to run the risk of repeating myself and appearing doubly foolish, but would it be too much to ask you why you've gone to the trouble of duping Dr Singh into believing that you have a daughter staying with you? I would have thought that was obvious. Please indulge me. A short while later, the shopping put away, a pot of tea made and explanations given, Jonah watched his father leave the kitchen to fetch Miss Costello's son. Standing in front of the arga and running his fingers over the shiny surfaces, he was overwhelmed by the shame this acerbic one-woman dream team had made him feel. He wanted to thank her for what she had done and for what she was prepared to go on doing for the rest of the week, but he was mortified that a stranger had walked into his father's life and achieved what no member of his own family could do, or, more precisely, what none of them had even tried to do. Behind him, he could hear her opening a packet of biscuits he had bought. He turned and watched her tip the chocolate chip cookies onto a plate to form a perfect spiral. He wondered if things always turned out so well for her. This must seem strange to you, he said. From the outside looking in, it must appear as though we, his children, don't care. He hoped she wouldn't judge him too harshly. She gazed at him severely, astutely, assessingly. You probably don't care, not enough anyway. That's not fair, he said defensively. She crumpled the empty packet into a tight ball and put it in the swing bin. Okay then, she said. I'll be generous and say you've simply got used to the chaos and squalor in which your father has been living and turned a blind eye to it. Are you always so blunt? Yes. That's probably what my father likes about you. Few people ever gain his approval. And just because one is related to a person, it doesn't mean you understand each other or even get on. She surveyed him steadily, her eyes cool and measuring. Unnerved, he turned away. As unlikely as it was, Jonah had never seen his father talk to a child before and intrigued, he watched him with Miss Costello's young son, Ned. He was a sweet-faced boy whose expression ran the gamut from solemn to bright as if at the flick of a switch. He was immensely confident, not at all shy, and seemed extraordinarily comfortable with Gabriel, whom Jonah would have expected to terrify the child senseless. 
He had a shiny cap of dark brown hair, the same colour as his mother's, intensely dark alert eyes and an engaging smile. Jonah had no way of knowing if his mother had passed this on to him too, because he had yet to see her smile. But from the disapproving glances she flung at him, Jonah was getting the message that she despised him for not doing more to help his father. Though Jonah was more used to teenagers, he had to admit that for four years old, Ned was remarkably well behaved, never once spilling his drink or dropping crumbs. The nearest he got to making a faux pas was when he had told his mother, with his mouth full, that Mr Liberty was going to teach him to play drafts tomorrow morning. He says, I can be white and go first. He's shown me the board. It's very old. Mr Liberty won't teach you anything if you spray everyone with biscuit crumbs, Ned, his mother reprimanded him gently. Finish what's in your mouth, then talk to us. His lips tightly sealed now. He was chewing extra fast, his miniature eyebrows rising up and down. He swallowed hard and continued excitedly. But he says I might not be clever enough to play drafts because I'm so young. Do you think I'm clever enough to play, Mummy? Suddenly he looked grave, his eyes wide. You're as clever as you need to be, Ned, she said reassuringly. No more, no less. Another of your inscrutable replies, Miss Costello. Bravo! Do you lie in bed at night, practising them when you can't get to sleep? Not at all, Mr Liberty. I'm naturally inscrutable. Moreover, I never have trouble sleeping. I put it down to having a guilt-free mind. As he got up to add more hot water to the teapot, Jonah felt strangely isolated. There was a level of light-hearted repartee going on between this woman and his father that seemed designed to exclude him. It was as if he'd walked in on the middle of something, which, in a way, he had. Oddly, he felt as though he was playing gooseberry to their extraordinary double act of sparky lovebirds. He stared out across the darkening courtyard to where the yellow skips stood and beyond to where Miss Costello's camper van was parked. Lifting the kettle, he poured freshly boiled water into the pot and wondered what was really going on here. Who was this confident, efficient woman who could sit so at ease at his father's table, playing verbal pit-pat with him? And why did their obvious rapport rankle him so much? Why did it make him feel even more of a failure than he usually did at Mermaid House? It was the same every visit, as if the bricks and mortar contained a magnetic force that made him revert to the anxious boy he had once been. Hearing his father laughing behind him, and not the usual scornful barked-out guffaw he was more used to, but full-throated good cheer, an ugly thought occurred to him. He was jealous. Jealous that this stranger, with her sharp, no-nonsense way of talking, who had probably never suffered a moment's doubt, could make his father happy, and he could not. Suddenly he felt a flash of searing pain. He hadn't been concentrating on what he was doing and had poured boiling water over his hand. Stifling a yelp of pain, he moved to the sink and shoved his fist under the cold tap. Here, let me see. It was the efficient Miss Costello. It's nothing, he said but he allowed her to inspect his hand. Keep it under the tap while I go and fetch my first aid kit, she instructed. While he watched her through the window as she hurried through the courtyard, his father joined him at the sink. You wouldn't be attention-seeking, would you, boy? And you wouldn't be making a fool of yourself over a pretty young girl, would you? Jonah wanted to retort. Within minutes, she was back and showing him a tube of cream. Slightly out of breath, she said, it will sting at first, but then it will feel quite cool. 
what is it? he asked, turning off the tap and reaching for a clean handkerchief from his trouser pocket to dry his hand. A homeopathic remedy for burns. Works every time. Now remember, I said it would sting at first. Ouch! He pulled his hand away. You're worse than a baby. Honestly, men, you're all the same. Merest hint of pain and you go pathetically weak-kneed. Whereas you brave women lap it up and ask for more. No, we simply grin and bear it. He forced a grin and held out his hand again. Go on then, I'll bear the agony just to prove to you that I'm no coward. I'm sure inflicting pain on a mere man will give you great pleasure. She smiled unexpectedly and for the first time he registered that there was more to her than the prim, judgmental woman he had thought. Sorry to disappoint you, she said, but I get my kicks in a much more satisfying way. There, that's it. And not one tear shed. Give yourself a pat on the back. I would if I had any feeling left in my hand. You have two hands, Mr Liberty Junior? Or is the glass always half empty for you, rather than half full? Before he could answer, she was screwing the top back on the tube of cream and had turned to his father. I think Ned and I have earned ourselves the rest of the day off. Eight o'clock see you tomorrow morning. I want to finish sorting out the laundry room. Then I'll make a start on getting the dining room into apple pie order. He grunted. Eight o'clock? Working part-time, are you? Thought you were too good to be true. And you're too full of sweetness. Come on, Ned. Time for some supper on our own more congenial company. Suppressing a yawn, Ned climbed down from his chair. Good night, Mr Liberty, he said. You will teach me that game in the morning, won't you? A promise is a promise, young man. Now be off with you before you fall asleep and I have to carry you across the courtyard to your bed. Both Jonah and his father saw them to the back door and watched them go. And a soft light glowed from the windows of the camper van, giving it a warm, cosy look. Gabriel shut the door, led the way back into the kitchen and said, Right then, what was it you wanted to talk to me about? Remembering why he was here, Jonah suddenly felt every inch the coward that only moments ago he had denied. Chapter 25 It didn't matter how many times Jonah replayed the scene at Mermaid House, or how often he tried to convince himself that he was overreacting, he knew that last night he had been judged by the snappish Miss Costello and, worse, that he had been found wanting. It was Saturday morning and he was lying in bed trying to enjoy the slow, potentially relaxing start to the day. But it wasn't working. His enjoyment levels were at an all-time low. He laced his hands behind his head and stared up at the ceiling. His mind took a further nosedive when he noticed that the indigo blue paint he had applied earlier that week looked patchy in the bright sunlight shining through the uncurtained window. No doubt that would never happen to Miss Costello. Anything she painted would be perfect. Irritated that she had come into his thoughts again and that he was forced to refer to her so formally, as though she were an old-fashioned schoolmarm, he reminded himself that what she didn't know and could never understand was that there were other dimensions to the truth about his family a whole kaleidoscope of dimensions that no outsider could appreciate. But far from making him feel better, this added to his guilt. He was making excuses for himself. He closed his eyes, then opened them again, hoping he'd imagined the flaw in the paintwork. No, 
He hadn't. Haphazard crisscrosses were clearly visible. It was an infuriating mess. Why hadn't he noticed it before? And why hadn't he done something about his father instead of leaving him to turn to a stranger? Frustrated with going round in this same futile circle, which kept dumping him where he had started, he launched himself out of bed. He went to the window and gazed down at the long stretch of garden at the back of the house, which he was in the process of taming. It ran parallel to the churchyard and fell away to merge with the landscape of gently rolling hills. At the bottom of the garden there was a tangle of brambles, which for years had got the better of a beautiful old rose that must once have reigned supreme. Against the wall of the brick-built shed there was a forsythia that had also taken more than its fair share of space, and that too needed his attention. He'd always thought it was just the kind of space in which Val would have liked to potter. The garden at Mermaid House had never lent itself to a quiet afternoon's pottering. It was too big, much too wild and exposed for anything tender to flourish in. Normally the view from his bedroom window cheered him. The lush green pasture land had a pleasantly soothing effect. But this morning his mood was still clouded by the severity of Miss Costello's words and the reproachful way in which she had treated him. There had been something unnervingly proprietorial in her manner towards his father. He had wanted to explore this with Gabriel after she and her son had left them alone last night, but there had been no opportunity to steer the conversation in that direction, not without annoying his father. He had soon sensed that the proprietorial thing went both ways. Gabriel hadn't been prepared to divulge any information about her, or maybe he hadn't anything to divulge. Certainly he didn't seem to know much about Miss Costello. What does it matter where she's from, he had said in response to Jonah's probing. She's on holiday with her son and doing some work for me. What more do I or you need to know about her? But I still don't understand why he wanted to play a practical joke on Dr Singh. And quite frankly, Jonah, I don't understand why you're suddenly paying me so much attention. Do I interfere in anything you do? No. I leave you to get on and cock up your own life, just as you told me to do when you walked out on me. Those words reminded Jonah too poignantly of the scene in the library when his father had struck him, so he had changed the subject and suggested that he cook them supper. But Gabriel had turned the offer down flat. I'm quite capable of getting my own supper. Why don't you stop wasting your time and get to the point as to why you've come here? Which he did but only when his father was searching the cupboards for a bottle of whisky, banging doors and muttering, Where the hell did that infernal girl put it? Dad, have you thought that maybe it might be a good time to think about selling Mermaid House? The last of the cupboard doors crashed shut and his father turned round, a bottle of single malt in hand. He banged it down on the table, spun off the top, poured himself a large measure and without saying anything raised it to his lips. He took a long gulp. And why would I want to do that? He asked finally. Because you might be more comfortable in something smaller, easier to manage? Gabriel topped up his glass. How small were you thinking? Coffin size? Don't be ridiculous, Dad. That's rich. You don't think you're being ridiculous by coming here and suggesting I change my lifestyle to suit your conscience? It's got nothing to do with my conscience. No, then perhaps it's more to do with lining your pockets. Casper and Damson's bottomless pockets as well, no doubt. 
Have they bullied you into coming here tonight to convince the old duffer that it's in everybody's interest for him to sell the house so they can get their hands on the loot? Of course not. He gave a contemptuous snort. You never did have any talent for lying, Jonah, unlike your brother. So what's the line he's taking? Death duties? Am I expected to sell my home and make a gift of the proceeds to my beloved children in the hope that I would live long enough for there to be no heavy tax penalties to pay? A happy ever after scenario for everyone except me. Whatever Casper may or may not have in mind, you don't have to go along with it. He snorted again. What's this? Rebellion in the ranks? Look, Dad, you might get some kind of vicarious thrill from pitching me against Casper. But the truth is, I've come here tonight to suggest that it might be in your interest to think about moving to a house that will be more convenient for you to live in. No one else should come into the equation. What's more, what you choose to do with the proceeds of Mermaid House would be your affair. Personally, I'd rather you use them for your own pleasure and satisfaction, or gave them away to someone a whole lot more deserving than anyone with the name of Liberty. A dog's home, perhaps? Or how about Miss Costello? She strikes me as being eminently deserving. In spite of himself, Jonah had looked up sharply at this. It's your money. You can do with it what you will. If you think Miss Costello would benefit from it, then give it to her. Slipping his jacket on, he'd added, I've said all I came to say, so now I'll go. Before either of us says anything, we'll regret. Good night. It wasn't until he was driving home that he knew he had admitted to say one important thing, that above all else, he cared about his father's welfare and happiness. Downstairs in the kitchen, eating a piece of toast and scanning his mail, Jonah thought of how his father could never resist fanning the smouldering flames of a difficult conversation into a roaring argument. His comment that Miss Costello was an eminently deserving case had been a blatant attempt to keep their heated exchange going. Even so, he couldn't help wondering how Casper would react if he thought there was a chance that the threat might be carried out. The thought stayed with him for the rest of that day, so when the telephone rang later that afternoon and Casper demanded to know the outcome of his visit to Mermaid House, he couldn't stop himself pursuing what could only be described as a wanton act of malicious stirring. It was petty and foolish, but nonetheless he relayed the goings-on at Mermaid House to his brother, labouring the point that their father seemed very taken with the attractive woman who had appeared from nowhere to work for him. To hear the taut shock in his brother's voice and visualise his fuming face was worth every second of the ear-bashing to which he was then subjected. So, a day into her task and Mermaid House is beginning to emerge. Clara has transformed the kitchen, reinstated the arger, cleaned out the cupboards and scrubbed and polished till every surface shines. Whilst Ned has been happily chatting and playing cards with Gabriel, she's mended the washing machine, cleared out the laundry room, had lines of washing drying in the breeze and organised a skip to be delivered. So Jonah's confused reaction, after being informed by Dr Singh that Damson was staying at Mermaid House, was not really surprising. But once he's had time to digest what's really going on, how will he feel about Clara and Ned's presence at his father's home? 
Hope you enjoyed this episode of Tell Me a Story. Tune in next time as the story unfolds. Thank you.